Welcome to the Ogletree Deacons podcast, a brief discussion of compelling legal issues and practical insights. Please note that the information in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be, nor should it be construed as legal advice. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or through your favorite podcast service. Please consider rating and reviewing so that we may continue to provide the content that covers your needs. Please enjoy the program. Hello, and welcome back to The Break Room with Bill Grobe. Uh, here today, uh, you know, I, I managed to catch him in between visits on sites again, and, and for the second time, it's, I'm so grateful that Philip Russell could stop by The Break Room um, because now we've got so many things happening, probably the biggest news of which is, is the dropping of the new emergency temporary standard um, from OSHA. And so I'm so glad that I could catch Philip. You know, we talked about some of these emergency temporary standards before, and, and Philip gave us a great background on on why they exist and how they exist and, and how they come to be. And now we have a new one that's affecting all employers with over 100 employees. And of course, that's in addition to the federal contractor mandate. And then there's been a, a, another mandate for um, organizations that deal with Medicare and Medicaid. So there's just a lot of mandates going on. And, and probably the most important thing is it's brand new. We don't know how it's going to be sorted out. There are lawsuits that have already been filed. Twelve states filed a lawsuit uh, in federal court. Florida has promised to file a lawsuit as soon as the uh, ETS is posted in the uh, federal register, which has happened today. So we can assume that we'll see one from Florida. And so probably the most important thing that we can do is talk about what we know today. And then, Philip, maybe we can come back in a few weeks and talk about what we know then, because I suspect it's going to be a whole lot more than we know now. I want to say thank you, Philip, for, for joining us. And what do you think about this thing at, at first blush? <laughs> I'm not sure you want to ask me that question. Obviously, Bill, lots to unpack here. Thanks for having me back in the break room. And, uh, you know, such an honor to be here and, and try and digest this thing as best we can for our, our friends and our clients out there. And that's no small task. This thing is 490 pages long, uh, was just released yesterday and just hit the Federal Register today. So I actually thought it was going to drop on uh, Halloween weekend. I missed it by a week, but uh, it it did come out. The clocks are ticking. There are two compliance dates of 30 days and 60 days, which we'll talk about. But what's more importantly is the federal courts are now open for challenges. And as you mentioned, those have begun. There was one filed today in the Eighth Circuit. We're expecting them to be filed in the 11th, the 5th, maybe the 4th, the D.C. Circuit, and maybe a possible consolidation uh, at some point of all the cases, likely in the D.C. Circuit. But that's part of what is provided for in the OSH Act, which is the law that created OSHA, and it's a law that has Section 6C of the Act, that allows OSHA to promulgate an emergency temporary standard as long as it meets certain requirements. And if anyone believes that those requirements have not been met, then they file what's called a petition for review in the applicable circuit court, the federal appeals court. So, Bill, it doesn't go to a trial court. So we're not going to see the kind of forum shopping you might see where you can cherry pick a judge or a local court. This really does go in straight into the appellate system. And while we're on the subject, I'm going to go ahead and answer this question. I've been answering all day, two of them. What are the chances of success of these petitions and will there be a stay? Uh, I'm going to take them in reverse order. On a stay, the statute's very clear. A stay is not automatic. The filing of the petition 
is not going to operate as a stay of the standard of the ETS unless otherwise ordered by the court. And that's why, Bill, you're going to see multiple petitions and multiple circuits because it increases the chances that a panel on one of those circuits will order a stay until it decides whether or not this is uh, the, the petitioner can win. And that's just like any injunction. What are the chances of prevailing? So then the question, of course, is, well, can they win? Can these petitioners win? And there's going to be three arguments, Bill. Number one is that this ETS goes beyond the scope that Congress gave to OSHA. It goes beyond what our Occupational Safety and Health Administration is supposed to be regulating. And there are some decent arguments there uh, that you know OSHA was not set up for something like this. One piece of evidence that will be pointed to is the fact that OSHA has, since it's been around, not gotten involved with something like the flu, where it has gotten involved in things like silicosis and asbestosis, which are substances, hazardous substances in, in, in the environments in the workplace, whereas COVID is more like the flu. So you'll see those kinds of arguments, number one. Number two, you're going to see arguments that OSHA did not meet the statutory requirement in the OSHA Act which is to have a grave danger, and again, related to substances or agents determined to be toxic or harmful in the workplace, and that the ETS it issued is necessary. So there's your three requirements, Bill. I think there are some good arguments by the petitioners, but there is no way I'm going to predict the outcome of that. Well, well, I'll tell you, Philip, and that is really great information. You're right. Everything is sneaking up on us so fast. That's the, the three primary arguments. I've also heard arguments about, well, gosh, if it was so doggone grave danger, then why are we waiting until until January 4th to, to implement it? And why aren't we making employers pay for masks? And, you know, the, the questions go on ad infinitum. I mean, one of the issues, obviously, is cost. And we, we talked about that in our last podcast. And we didn't know. We didn't know whether the cost of this, uh, getting the uh, the testing, the weekly testing requirement would be borne on the employer or the employee. And and, and it seems to me like the ETS and, and the 490 pages, which by the way is great therapy for insomnia, it went on quite a few times to talk about how this cost is not passed to the employer, that it was very emphatic about this. And it almost seems as they're, they're using that as leverage to try to get what they say is the actual objective of the mandate and that is that that employers mandate the vaccination requirement. And so, you know, that's not going to be passed on, although I would say with a caveat, the question is, what about those folks who are seeking a legal um, accommodation with regard to the mandate? If you do have a mandatory vaccine requirement, you know, the cost may then, because of the uh, accommodation process and the interactive process, the cost may be something that will be borne on the employer rather than the employee. But I, I think that's going to be a question for uh, when we come back and circle back to this in a few weeks. And so I think the the key is, you know, the, the new emergency temporary standards requires employees to implement the mandatory vaccination policy unless they take the alternative and they adopt a policy where employees may either be fully vaccinated or regularly tested. Uh, and, and this is no less frequently than every seven days and wear a face covering uh, when they work with other individuals. And my understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that face covering requirement actually goes into effect in 30 days, whereas the, the mandatory vaccination component is going to be enforced in 60 days. Yeah, that's right. I mean, and it, you know, again, 
it sort of touches upon the issue of you know when. I mean, we're talking about these timelines. When must employers do things in order to comply with the ETS? And, and you correctly put those 30 and 60 day deadlines out there. I had an interesting question not, not too long ago, Bill, from a, a client with, I mean, really actually a large client with multiple figures, uh, multiple five figures of employees. I don't, I don't want to say who it was, but the question was, if we wanted to take a wait and see approach, how long do we have? And there's not really probably a right or wrong answer, but I gave them a, a top of the bell curve of two weeks. I think if it's uh, if a if an appellate court doesn't stay this thing in the next two weeks, you've got to be really ready to go for December 5th. And that's when you've got to make sure that you've got your policy in place. You got to make sure that you know who's been vaccinated, who hasn't been vaccinated and be ready to take those next steps required under the ETS. Uh, if you are looking at these requirements and depending upon what you're what you were already doing. Now, some employers, Bill, as you know, were already requiring vaccinations. We've talked about that quite a bit. And if you already were, maybe there's not so much more for you to do. But if you were not requiring vaccinations before, there's a lot more for you to be doing now. Yeah, that's so interesting because I read a lot of the, the 490 pages, not all of it, but I, I read quite a bit of it. And I thought it was interesting how the points that were made in the emergency temporary standard documentation was they were really in line with what uh, the fo- I believe the folks that drafted it thought would be the arguments, right? So they talked a lot, a lot more than I thought they would about the grave danger standard and how that standard has been met and why that standard has been met and why it's important. And, and it seemed to me like they went even in, in greater detail than they probably ordinarily would have expecting those challenges. And, and here's the other thing that I thought was interesting that I didn't think um, they'd spend a lot of time on, but they, it was very specific, right? The emergency temporary standard will preempt inconsistent state and local requirements, including requirements that ban or limit employers' authority to require vaccination. Those words are, are in there verbatim in the standard, almost anticipating that, uh, and, and you've been involved in this, states may be working on their mini OSHA acts to somehow uh, either supersede or combat against what the Fed might be doing. Yeah, there you have it. I mean, they may as well have uh, put into the preamble part where they discuss that. They may have just said, here's looking at you, Florida and Texas. <laughs> <laughs> so that's that's there's the battle. I mean, does, you know, just because OSHA says it, this preempts uh, state law doesn't mean it's so. And, you know, that Bill, that's what we do. We help our clients understand the law. We help them hold OSHA accountable to the law, whether it's in an inspection after a fatality or a citation. And really, even now, you know, with this ETS, did it follow the law? I don't have the answer for that. I know what the arguments are going to be, but we'll see what happens when one of these circuit courts makes a decision. So that preemption issue is one of those things. Did OSHA follow the law? Are they right? We'll see. And I think, and, and certainly we're going to see some some of these opinions come out and come out soon. I, I agree with your assessment that two weeks is a pretty good litmus test to at least see initially where we appear to be going with regard to the enforceability of the emergency temporary standard. And, and the other thing folks were really concerned about prior to getting this, and there were a lot of questions about it, was what costs really are going to be borne 
on the employer. And, and so um, here we've got a couple of costs that we know of. The emergency temporary standard requires all covered employers to support the vaccination option, which again, they, they have said in no uncertain terms is the preferred option to support that option by giving employees reasonable time, including up to four hours of paid time to receive each vaccination dose. And that, that's pretty specific, four hours of paid time. But then it says, and reasonable time and paid sick leave to recover from, from vaccination side effects. So I think we're going to be uh, waiting and seeing what that means by a reasonable period of time. And what if the employee doesn't have paid sick leave at the time? What if the, the employee has has um, uh, exhausted their, their either their leave entitlement or their paid leave entitlement? You know, what's going to happen down the road on that? What are your thoughts? Yeah, I don't have any good thoughts because I don't know what they mean. Right. And you know, I just don't. I mean, at least, Bill, when we dealt with other, when you deal with other federal leave laws, and I'm looking at you, FMLA, we have a way to calculate the dates. We can look at a calendar and come up with a date certain. Even, frankly, under the ADA with a reasonable accommodation, it's not unlimited. Yeah, maybe that's more of a closer analogy for us to look at. Maybe it's under the ADA where there's a reasonable accommodation that might involve some time away from work which means you're then going to get involved in a an interactive discussion back and forth with the employee as to how much that would be. Well, you're imposing another requirement here that otherwise doesn't exist under the law. And I think there are some serious questions as to whether or not OSHA's got the regulatory authority about paid time off, to this extent anyway. Yeah, and, and again, you're absolutely right. That's one of the arguments that's been advanced in, in some of the filings that, that have already occurred, and certainly another one of the arguments that, that I have heard that Florida may advance as well when, when it files. Um, have you heard, and, and, and I admit that I don't know the answer to this, and, and I didn't read every word of that. Do you know what home testing, if it's going to be permitted, and what qualifies as, a, uh, as, as proof that the test yeah. is negative? Yeah, so no, it's it's um, there's going to be some home testing allowed or the, under the standard, but it's very clear that there's got to be some sort of custodian or observation of the testing at home. So it's not something where you're going to be able to just say, no, I took a test and I'm fine. See here, it was me. But what we don't know is to, what, what does that mean? Does your HR department loop in you know, with a virtual platform and watch you administer the test? Don't know, but there has to be at least some healthcare provider or some observation by the employer to know that the test was really the test administered to the employee. Which I guess makes you think, you know, if, if there's going to be tests that will be on hand at, at some employer sites or not. I mean, again, I think that's something that we're going to, to, to find out as we progress with this. And, and here's the other thing. So the rule uh, was interesting to us in, in the way that um, the employee counts are made, right? And there's a big difference between whether the employer is subject to the mandate and whether the employee himself or herself or, or itself or they self are going to be subject to the mandate based on where that employee works. So uh, I think the rule talks specifically about, you know, 100 employees, you count everybody except part-time employees, you don't count independent contractors, but the employees who must comply with that, if you have 100 employees and you have 90 employees who work remotely, 
those folks who do not report to a workplace do not need to get vaxxed. And, and I think there's going to be a lot of questions. You know, does coming in to pick up a paycheck, would that count as reporting to the workplace? And, you know, it'll be interesting to see how, how those things are sorted out. What are you hearing on that? Yeah, well, the one that I find to be most interesting is and, and has caused my phone to ring off the hook today from my clients in the construction industry is this um, exclusion for employees who outdoors. work exclusively outdoors. Well, yep. what does that mean? Well, Philip, uh, Philip, I'll tell you, you're not alone in that because I'm getting calls from the theme parks, right? You've got the construction guys. I've got the theme parks. And, and sir, most of those folks work outdoors, but man, they have close customer contact. So I didn't mean to interrupt you, but it's coming from all sides. Yeah, no. And so let's let's talk. I think we really need to unpack that because it's important. And I think there's also a potential for a conflict here with, with what OSHA is trying to do with heat illness and heat stress. And I'll explain that. But let's take a look. What, what OSHA says, there's some discussion in the preamble, but the FAQ, it's 2B. And what it says is that for someone who is performing work exclusively outdoors, there's three requirements. Number one, they've got to work outdoors on all days meaning it's not work inside some days, work outside other days, every day. Second, you've got to routinely occupy or must, sorry, must not routinely occupy vehicles with other employees as part of your job. So in other words, no driving to work sites together in a company vehicle. And number three, the work outdoors must be for the duration of the work day, except for de minimis use of indoor spaces where others may be present, like a I don't know, job site trailer in the construction world, perhaps, for example. And it's just another caveat they throw in here about outdoors does not include buildings under construction where there are some walls and structures and ceiling elements in place that would impede the natural flow of fresh <laughs> air. So, wow, what if you're building a house and hey, I got the wall up? <laughs> <laughs> I know. Bring a fan. Bring a fan is what I'm right. thinking. <laughs> so, I mean, here's the problem when you look at that is, is all right, so my, I got a lot of friends in the road and bridge building industry and a lot of those folks, asphalt, you know, pavers, for example, paving companies, a lot of those folks are outside workers and I don't think I'm too worried about a porta potty, but I, what about job trailers? And what about also whenever out workers that are outdoors, um, you know, maybe even the landscaping industry, uh, they need to take a break from the heat. Here's the might, the possible conflict bill. Part of what OSHA tells you to do is to give employees breaks. One way in which employers give breaks is to let them go inside a job trailer or truck or vehicle and exactly. sit in the AC. So now what's the tension going to be, right? I mean, that, that again, remains to be seen. And we'll probably see more uh, of responses to frequently asked questions as, as this goes on. But you're absolutely right. Uh, you know, I, I think that as we've talked about at the beginning, there's more questions than answers. And in fact, I think I've discombobulated myself. And, I'm, and as I think about that, I wonder, where are all the combobulated people? I always deal with the discombobulated people. But <laughs> I did say that it counts part-time employees, right? Those those folks are counted. Uh, I think I said part-time employees and not independent contractors. But as I think back to it, I just want to make sure that, that I was clear. It is part-time employees who are counted, but not independent contractors. And 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 But as we're talking about those things, right, the, here's the other thing that, that I thought was interesting because I didn't think I'd see it in the emergency temporary standard, and maybe you did, but it actually talks about employers with less than 100 employees, and it's seeking comments about, well, what do we do in certain situations? And, and that leads me to believe that maybe this is something that, that it could possibly be intended 
to be a permanent standard. And, and I'm very curious as to what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, exactly. And that's that's how it happens. And, you know, this is the publication today in the Federal Register starts the comment period. If you go to the federal webpage for the ETS, there's a nice green button called Submit a Formal Comment. Comments are open. The period ends on December 6th, so 31 days from now. And when OSHA has those comments, and now it continues to go down the path of making this a permanent standard for COVID-19 as opposed to a temporary standard. Uh, And we haven't done this in a while. It's been a long time since we've had an ETS that has evolved into a permanent standard. In fact, it's only happened once before. So when you look at this process and see how it happens, if you're an employer, if you're involved in an industry association and you have something to say, now's the time. Yeah, and, and and I think about I think about that in the comments, and and I think back to the last time where we had you know the most comments that we ever had about about anything that was offered up by the government, and that was the the minimum salary basis test uh, some years ago when they were deciding under the Obama administration what the minimum salary basis would be for exempt employees, and I'm wondering if the comments on on this issue are going to eclipse that because ev- it seems like everybody has an opinion, right or wrong, lawful or unlawful, and we're not here to, to decide that today, but everyone has an opinion, and, and I think that this may have a heck of a lot of comments with that regard. Yeah, I don't know who runs the IT for the Federal Registry. Web page, but I hope it's you better robust. be saving it in the cloud. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> I hope it's robust. Absolutely. And, and and then, you know, aside from that, and, and maybe we do have to worry about that issue again, the next two weeks are going to be are going to be very significant as uh, things move forward and we find out what happens in the courts. But it'll be interesting to see what those comments, uh, um, uh, you know, bear out and then what the response is from Ocean. And I want to talk just a little bit more um, because it's important. Our time is, is running a little bit short, but the counting method, right? We have a lot of franchises out there and franchisors and then a whole lot of staffing agencies. And, and the, you know, bless their hearts in that, that 490 pages, there's a lot of information about how to count people. I thought it was interesting. So if you're a staffing company and you have more than 100 employees in your staffing company, but you only staff 10 to say, you know, uh, the XYZ widget maker and the XYZ widget maker has 50 employees. Well, you as the staffing company are going to be required to issue the mandate for your employees, whichever option you choose, including those 10 employees who are going to XYZ widget. But XYZ widget doesn't qualify in and of itself, and therefore their employees are not subject to the mandate. So, I mean, really interesting stuff. I, I assume that most of the time we'll have the 100 and 100, but people who use staffing agencies use those agencies so that they may not have to have a whole ton of employees, and, and they get that sort of ad hoc work from staffing agencies. What are your thoughts about that? Uh, it's a mess. Um, it, <laughs> I, think, just, I think that's a legal term. Excellent. It's a mess. Well, I mean, look at that from the staffing agency, but also, too, from the multi-employer work sites. All right. So take a look at that, you know, even from the construction industry uh, and how you do it. It is, you know, they're saying here that on a typical multi-employer work site of obviously construction is the most obvious then the host employer, who's the GC, and then each subcontractor only counts its own employees. Okay, but that means that so you don't count the host employer and the general contractor don't need to count the total number of workers at each site. 
So that said, so what has to happen then is each employer just counts the total number of workers it employs regardless of where they work on a particular day. So the example they give, if a GC has more than 100 employees spread out over multiple construction sites, the employer's covered even if it doesn't have 100 at a particular work site. Now, what's confusing about that to me is, wait a minute, why would you not just go ahead and lump everybody together if the whole point is to get to 100 the way you are doing it with other counts, like part-time? Why are you counting part-time as a full employee? No other area of the law does that that I'm aware of. And you're right. That's the tension because now you have folks at a site, right, where you have some people who are, are required to abide by the mandate. But think of your example. And, and as you know, Central Florida is is quickly becoming one of the warehousing capitals of the United States. And what if somebody's in there building a warehouse with 10 subs and each one of those subs has 20 folks that are working on that particular warehouse all in the same you know, fairly confined space, but none of those employers, discrete separate employers have 100 employees, yet you got 200 people working with each other in a confined space who clearly could provide some type of, of dangerous situation with regard to the transmission of COVID. And, and those are questions, again, that, that make you go, hmm. It, it does. You know, and, and OSHA has this thing called the multi-employer citation policy, where it really doesn't care who you work for. The hazard applies to everyone. And you have different classifications of the, the, the controlling employer, the creating employer, the exposing employer, the main three. Well, all right, I understand that you have that, so that means it, but here it would seem, at least by way of headcount, that they're trying to make a distinction that might be inconsistent with its own policy. So that's where I think I, I, I just have, I think we're going to continue to digest this. I know this is just our first run on this 24, 30 hours after it was released, um, but these are the kind of down in the weeds things that our clients and we are struggling with. Well, you're right. And, and more questions than answers, certainly. And, and that's why we want to uh, catch you in the break room again in, in a few weeks and see if we can come back and, and talk about what we know at that point in time. But but I will tell you, there's a lot of information that's being shared uh, both by the agency and, and certainly the, the folks out there who practice in this arena. We have a, another webinar scheduled for Monday to, to talk about it. And I think that, that that's got uh, such a huge response so far. So if you want to tune into that, that's going to be interesting. And I assure you, there's going to be a lot of information out there. And and, and we all know that, that different folks in different firms and, and companies may have differing opinions. And you want to talk to the people that you trust most and have that opportunity to make your own decision based on the best possible wealth of information that you can accumulate in making that decision. And, and so closing thoughts, Philip, what are, what are your thoughts on that? My, yeah, agreed. This is not something you should be paying attention to the news to determine how you're going to uh, run your business. Uh, I've already read newspaper articles, uh, newspaper, listen to me, news articles. Uh, <laughs> newspaper. Wow. Good for you. But, uh, you know, that that let me know that, you know, there's a lot of misinformation out there already about this thing and what it is and what it means and and uh, whether or not OSHA has met the legal requirements or not. And and uh, and what employers should do, what their options are. And, you know, each employer has to make a decision on their own. You can listen to our webinars and listen to our direction, listen to this podcast. But ultimately, each employer has to make a decision on their own. My closing thought on this bill is, is that your, your name, Bill, reminds me of the 
the Saturday morning cartoon. I'm, I'm just a bill, my friend. Heck yeah. Yeah. And that's where this is, a, you know, throwing out a little personal view here, but as an OSHA lawyer and a practitioner in this area for a long time, I just think this thing should have been a bill. I think that it would have been better received and, and, uh, you know, I think it could have uh, meshed with other laws, the wage and hour laws and other laws more nicely if this had been, you know, uh, on Capitol Hill as opposed to coming from an administrative agency. But that's just me. Yeah, but then it's back to the White House where you stand in a line with lots of other bills for the president to sign. And, and I'll tell you, I did happen to see a, a PowerPoint presentation that you had done recently that had the, the I'm just a bill meme in there. And it, it warmed my heart a little bit because that was my favorite Schoolhouse Rock character for uh, for obvious reasons. But I agree with you. You know, it, it's, it's hard to say really what was the best way to roll this out. But but regardless of what we think and how it happened, here it is. And what do we do about it now? And so thank you, Philip, for, for stopping by the break room and talking to us about this. I promise you that we're going to get back to you in a few weeks and we're going to talk about it again to see where things have shaken out and what the future looks like. And as you all know, Philip and I both have national and, and global practices. We have a thousand lawyers in the firm that, that we can um, ask questions of. And um, I'm just I'm just very grateful to, to have that ability to, you know, if, if I don't know something, ask a friend who probably does. And so please rely on the people that you trust with regard to these questions. And we'll see you again soon in the break room. Thank you for joining us on the Ogletree Deacons podcast. You can subscribe to our podcasts on Apple Podcasts or through your favorite podcast service. Please consider rating and reviewing so that we may continue to provide the content that covers your needs. And remember, the information in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be construed as legal advice.